Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms. Looking today at Psalm 69, 19 through 36, and your salvation, O God. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we look at this great chapter and these great verses in Psalm 69, Lord, you have so much to teach us from your word about the salvation that you have won for us in and because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, as we look at this great text today, I pray that not only would we be refreshed, we would be encouraged, we would be instructed, we would even be reminded of the great truths uh, that we're going to consider today, but also, Lord, that not only would would these, would these verses <coughs> help us to understand more of who you are and what you're like. But Lord, that that these verses would take hold in our hearts and that there would be transformation of life resulting in us walking out the truths that we are either reminded or we learn or we discover even for the first time today. So Lord, we thank you that your word is true and that you are eternal, you are unchanging, you are unending, You are without compare. You are majestic and awesome in all of your ways. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And we ask now that you open eyes and open ears to hear what you have to say to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's word, go ahead and open it. Today we're going to be in Psalm 69. 19 through 36. Psalm 69, 19 through 36. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when when they are at peace, let it become a trap. And let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents." For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. 
And when the humble see it, they will be glad. You seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities in Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. May God bless the preaching and the teaching of his word and the hearing of his word. Hebrew poetry relies on parallelism. A statement will be made followed by a parallel comment that elaborates or even amplifies the meaning of that text. Psalm 69 follows this pattern. The first half of this psalm begins with a lament, followed by a plea for help. And this pattern of lament and plea is repeated in this second half of the psalm with greater intensity. The repeated sections are also more obviously messianic. Their fulfillment seen clearly in the experience and the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ than that of David, the original author. And despite the intensity of its sorrow and the violence of its prayer for judgment, Psalm 69 is an uplifting psalm, concluding with praise and confidence in the salvation that the Lord alone can provide. And the reason for this confidence is that for all of its grief, David's psalm relates to the atoning suffering of Jesus on the cross. And in the hours that Jesus suffered anguish for our sins, earth bore witness to the most grievous crime ever committed. And at the same time, by remedying the great problem of our sin, the cross of Christ is the most joyous source of blessing our world has ever enjoyed. Philip Bliss expressed the mingling of sorrow and salvation in his hymn to the cross, which says, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God, who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, this psalm, Psalm 69, begins with a desperate plea for salvation. In Psalm 69.1, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Now, the repetition of this lament it clarifies David's meaning as arising specifically from the scorn of his enemies, which he says in verse 19 of this psalm, when he says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Now, we don't know what David is experiencing here. We don't know what attack he's speaking of, but he does tell what effect it had on him in verse 20, when he says, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. And so David sought consolation, uh, but was distressed by the response that he received in verse 20, which says, I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, and I found none. Dr. James Boyce comments, When we are hurting either from physical ills or mistreatments, the most natural thing in the world is to look around for someone who might at least be able to show us some sympathy or some comfort. But... David says that his trouble that in his trouble there was no one to offer him sympathy. No one provided even a little comfort. Now, that's a sad story. Especially because, you know what, many people over the years have said, you know what, I, I should have received help. I should have received care in the midst of my grief and struggles and pain and hurt in my life in the church, but I received none. 
Galatians 6, 1 through 2 tells us this. It tells us, following the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul, and love your neighbor. Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, that we're to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is the great commandment. That's what our life together in the local church is to look like. We're, we're to come alongside one another as the Lord comes alongside of us through the Spirit. He's the, par- the Spirit is the paraclete, Jesus says in John 15. And He comes alongside of us. The Holy Spirit does. He comforts us. He helps us so that we can be a comfort and a help to other people in our local churches. Now, instead of this, David's reception was so bitter that he compares it to poison and gall. He says in verse 21 of Psalm 69, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, in our last study, I explained that the repeated sections of Psalm 69 are most clearly messianic. And we see this in the lament in verses 19 through 21. For while it is difficult to know precisely how these verses apply to David, it's easy to relate them to the suffering of Christ. Isaiah foretold the unjust reproach that Jesus received in Isaiah 53:3 when he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And now we also see a direct fulfillment of verse 21 in the historical accounts of Jesus' death. When David laments, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The soldiers overseeing Jesus' death literally fulfilled this prophecy on at least two occasions. In Matthew 27, 34, it states, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, and when they tasted it, he would not drink it. John 19.21 adds that later they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Luke 23.46 exposes their motives when it says the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine. David's cry of sorrow therefore prefigures the emotional suffering of Christ as he died on the cross. Jesus took to himself the spirit of lament of Psalm 69, 19-21 in order to save us from it. George Horn writes, In the extremity of passion he was left alone, without a comforter, a friend, or an attendant, while all that were around him studied to infuse every bitter acronymous ingredient into his cup of sorrows. This was literally as well as metaphorically true when they gave him drink vinegar mingled with gall. Now, we, we all know the experience of, of being hurt or struggling with grief. You know, uh, in, in the last two years, I, I lost my dear mentor. Uh, sadly, he died of COVID pneumonia, and that was really, really hard. But by God's grace, I, I have come through it. And one of the things not only that's helped me, uh, along with just, just focusing on being more thankful— is lament. It's it's the idea that we can pour out our hearts before the Lord. Uh, we can pour out our our fears, our questions, our our doubts, our, our our pain to the Lord. And what Jesus what Jesus models for us is doing that perfectly. 
of course, we know that Jesus is the perfect, sinless Son of God and the Son of Man, and that because of his death and resurrection, Hebrews 2, 17-18, Hebrews 4, 14-16, tell us that uh, he invites us to come boldly before his throne of grace. And, and what this does for us, especially in light as we lay that, what I just explained, over a, a passage like this, that we're talking about in Psalm 69, what this what this does for us is to see that that a God is not distant from me. He's not disinterested in the things and the events of my life. No, instead he's near to me. In fact, Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That that is the immutability of God. That is his unchanging uh, nature. He will be with us. He is faithful. And Titus 1-2 says that God will never lie. And that means that God is not only unchanging, but that God will always act in accord with how he has revealed himself in his word. And what that does for us as Christians is it helps to stabilize us in Christ with the reminder that we serve a faithful, unchanging Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He will be with us. He will walk alongside of us in our darkest day, even though, as we might say with the psalmist in Psalm 23, that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord walks with us in the midst of that shadow of the valley of death. He's with us on that that hard road of suffering and pain. And he's even using that hard road of suffering and grief and pain. He's using it for our good and for his glory. And if if that's not even incredibly encouraging for us, David has more to say to us. As he talks to us now in Psalm 69, 19, about you know. These are some of the most encouraging words you know for us in David's lament in verse 19 of this psalm. After all, David's wrong. He had received no sympathy from his fellow men, but he takes solace in God's full knowledge of his plight. It is this knowledge alone that gives David hope in verse 19. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. You see, God knows not only the reproach that David has suffered, but he knows the injustice of the slander and the malice motives of those who assail his servant. And there are two senses in which the believer can pray to God you know. The first is God's divine omniscience, which he perfectly knows all things. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. The Westminster Children's Catechism, designed to instruct little hearts, states that God's omniscience and the words that comfort all believers. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. That's in the, the Catechism for Children, number 11. The truth that God sees and knows everything, including our thoughts and our minds, our desires, is troubling to those who have something to hide from God and reason to fear His judgment, whether that be some secret sin like pornography or hidden crime that has been undiscovered by man. And in contrast, A.W. Tozer says of those who have, been, who have found forgiveness in Christ, 
How unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our character can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. And even even the state of theology tells us that that a, a good portion of Christians today think that God changes, and what what we're seeing here in this text is God knows everything, because God is unchanging, and that is that is the most helpful thing in the world to know. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of the challenges that, that can beat us down in life, right? We all know this. We all know the reality of hard days. We all know the reality of hard trials. And nobody really, truly, genuinely believes that God changes. Because if God changes, guess what? Even for a nanosecond, the cosmos will, will cease to exist. They will cease to function, and we will cease to exist. We will become like dust that we really are. And yet, because God knows everything, and and because he's all-powerful, he upholds all things by the word of his power for our good and for his joy. God is perfectly self-sufficient in and of himself. That's a glorious truth, but there's a second sense in which the believer may rejoice in saying you know this is the experiential knowledge by the incarnate son of god of every sorrow and every trial that we experience as we've been talking about this hebrews 4 15 points out that since jesus walked through the dust of this broken world and suffered with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 says. So not only does God know what we suffer, but God's Son knows exactly how it feels to be reproached by men and scorned by those who ought to have given comfort. The writer of Hebrews again applies this truth, exhorting us to fly eagerly to Christ in prayer, especially when we're frightened or discouraged in Hebrews 4.16 which says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to to find help in time of need. The hymn writer Joseph Scriven put the same truth in memorable poetry when he said, Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, David is going to uh, switch, and he's going to talk about now in the re- in in the, this portion that we're going to consider of Psalm 69, a plea for judgment. And in the first half of Psalm 69, David follows his lament with a plea to God for help. Previously, David has prayed that fellow believers would not be discouraged by his disgrace. And now he's going to pray for God to inflict on his enemies a violent judgment that will afflict them as they have tormented them, tormented him. And now David pleads first that God would make all things that are normally our blessings into a curse for his foes in verse 22 of Psalm 69. 
which says, Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Now, David asks for fear and despair to overtake their his oppressors. In verse 23, he says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. And 30 prays for them to experience a bit of frustration. In verse 25, he says, May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Now, the essence of David's prayer is for God's wrath to strike and destroy his foes. In verse 24, he says, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. And it seems that God had disciplined David and that these enemies have reproached him for it. In verse 26, For they persecuted him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. He prays for their iniquity to be judged with even more iniquity so that their punishment will accelerate. In verse 27, he says, Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. In fact, David prays for their eternal coup de grace. In verse 28, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, David is not teaching that names can actually be removed from the eternal book of life from God, but simply that those who sinned against him should not uh, be counted among those who are justified before God. And this prayer to us in our modern culture seems extremely harsh. It raises the question of its suitability for followers of Jesus. Is it wrong to say, as most commentators have said, that that David's violent pleas are out of sync with the gracious agenda of Jesus who commanded Christians to love their enemies, as we see in Matthew 5.44. And on the surface, this criticism, it seems right, since the New Testament commands believers to leave the vengeance to the wrath of God in Romans 12.19. And we might even defend David by pointing out that he's not acting violently against his slanders, but only appealing to God for his retribution. And still, it's hard to see how David's spirit agrees with this attitude commanded by the gospel in Matthew 5.44. Pray for those who persecute you. To which Paul added, overcome evil with good in Romans 12.21. And how then can we justify David's violent words? Well, we should realize that David's prayer for God's wrath is referenced in the New Testament, not as a plea from David, but as a prophecy of what would occur with God's vast judgment. And while the verses contain a mixture of imperative command and future tenses, William Plummer states that it is clearly the language of prediction, not imprecation. As an example, in Romans 11, Paul is discussing the failure of the Jews to believe the gospel because they sought a salvation of good works. And he then explains this hardness of heart by appealing to this psalm in Psalm 69, 22-23. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever in Romans 11, 9-10. And just as David foresaw his enemies being judged, uh, though a cursed use of otherwise good things, Paul saw the Jews missing salvation because they wrongly emphasized their lineage and heritage as God's covenant people, thereby neglecting to turn to Christ. Now, the apostle is not wishing that his countrymen would come to harm, but accurately warning them of the consequences of unbelief. And he provides a warning of us of the same. And the question is, are you trusting your family name and your church-going lineage, some previous religious experience, your baptism, your church membership in the place of Christ? 
Now, to be clear, all of those things are good. But if you refuse to embrace the salvation that get, that Jesus gives to sinners at the cross and through the resurrection, these blessings will become a snare to you and a source of eternal blindness. Other New Testament quotations also show that David's prayer was not so much a request for God to destroy his enemies as it was a prophetic prediction that this would inevitably happen to such people. In Acts 1.20, Peter quotes Psalm 69.25 as a prophecy to Judas Istiochrat's death in the field he purchased with Jesus' blood money when he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And when Jesus cried out against Jerusalem for unbelief, he likewise alluded in Psalm 69.25, See, your house is left to you desolate in Matthew 23.38. Augustine summarized the New Testament treatment of David's prayer when he said, These are not the words of one wishing that mischief may happen to his enemies. They are the words of a, of a prophet, one who is foretelling in Scripture language the evil that must befall on them account of their sins. Now, second, in addition to seeing David's prayer as a prophecy more than a petition, we need to realize that he prayed not as a private person, but as Israel's king and as a forerunner of the coming Messiah. Eric Lane comments that David is speaking as the Lord's anointed king, who had been placed on the throne by God himself, so that in driving him out, they were rebellion against God. And in this official capacity, David spoke for God, calling judgment on God's own enemies out of, of a royal zeal for Christ's own kingdom. And the spirit of his prayer is therefore that of Psalm 2, 1 through 5, which says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laugh. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. In this way, David's prayer it expresses a warning of judgment that is typical of Scripture as a whole, including the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus spoke imprecations against the Pharisees that compare strongly with David's violent plea in Psalm 69. Consider Matthew uh, 23, 29, and 33, which says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You serpents, you brood of vipers! How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And when we realize that David was predicting the judgment that must fall on Israel's oppressors, we realize our great need to escape the judgment of God. The sins that David catalogs here are, are the kinds of sins that we have all committed against others. They are endemic to the fallen human race. If we think that we have not committed such sins, do a quick survey of the Ten Commandments, and that is going to show you that you have certainly violated the Ten Commandments of God multiple times every single day. And so how are we to avoid having our table made a snare or having punishment justly added upon punishment? And the answer to the sinner's predicament is a subject highlighted in Psalm 69, the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Now, what David concludes here about his prayer is an appeal for the salvation that Jesus secured on the cross. Psalm 69, 29 says, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Whether we are afflicted by the sins of others or afflicted by the guilt of our own sin, as we all are, then our only hope is God's salvation. God saves through the cross where Jesus suffered reproach and torment and was mockingly given sour wine and gall to drink. 
Isaiah expressed the same saving truth in his song of the suffering servant, offering the greatest comfort to believers who have appealed to the cross of Christ in Isaiah 53, 5-6, when he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we're going to see David's God-centered resolution. David lamented his reproach in a way that is best typified in the experience of Jesus Christ on the cross. When, When Jesus... When, he, when then he spoke from his anointed office to declare the judgment of, of those who mockingly rebel against the reign of Christ. And all of this tells us that this Psalm 69 will conclude on a sour note of misery and judgment. But in light of the cross, the Christian's sorrows and frustrations never prevail. Jesus has won the victory. James Boyce says this, A person would have to be blind, not to see sorrow and tragedy in this life. But for the Christian, tragedy is never the final word. The final word is always victory and praise. With this in mind, and looking beyond his trouble to the redemption that God would provide through the coming Savior, David concludes by rejoicing with praise for the greatness of God's salvation. And first, having found salvation in God, David desires to please the Lord by offering him true and sincere worship. In verses 30 through 31 of this psalm, which says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and roofs. And in referencing uh, an ox or a bull, David notes the former rituals of sacrifice, asserting that God is more pleased by the humble, sincere heart that is grateful for God's saving grace. And having committed, having committed his burdens to the Lord and reminded himself of the judgment uh, of God's judgment on the wicked, David concerns himself with pleasing God through thankful praise. John Calvin says this. There cannot be a more powerful incitement to thanksgiving than a certain conviction that this religious service is highly pleasing to God, even as the only recompense which he requires for all the benefits, which he lavishes upon us that we honor and praise his name. And second, having committed his own cares into God's own hands, David concerns himself again with building up the faith of others. This was his concern in his earlier petition in Psalm 69, 6, which says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. And now the same concern to edify believers is expressed positively through the effects that David foresees through his worship in verses 32 through 33, when he says, When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. And when when the other afflicted believers see David praising God with great rejoicing, They're going to be reminded of God's power to transform their own hearts from self-pity to praise. William Plummer says, There is no more effectual way uh, of consoling afflicted, humble souls than by God's Spirit leading them rightly to view the deliverances which he has wrought for others. And now David himself is revived as he gratefully offers praise to God, so that his confidence roars in trusting the salvation of God in verses 34 through 36 of this psalm. 
when he says, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in, in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. See, David's heart was able to grasp both the cosmic scope of God's glory and the riches of his blessing as he focused on the Lord and worship. See, God will defend and he will deliver his city as the dwelling place of his people. In fact, through faith in his name, their offspring will receive the inheritance of God's gracious provision. And those who love his name can be certain of a blessing. But notice the order of these blessings. The primary goal of worship is to please God through sincere praise of his name. But we rejoice in the byproduct of blessing for fellow believers and the renewing of our own confidence of salvation. The heritage of Israel in the promised land corresponds to the landscape of our salvation in Jesus Christ today. Whether Israel's heritage was a dwelling in the city of God, the Christian inheritance is justification through faith alone in Christ alone, adoption by grace in Christ, sanctification through the Holy Spirit, perseverance through faith in the name of Christ, and glorification in the end. What a great heritage God has secured for us. Our confidence grows strong like David's when we gaze on the Savior whose death is anticipated in Psalm 69. And, and reasoning from the cross with joy, the Apostle Paul wrote the following uh, assurance when he said in Romans 8, 32-37, He do not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And like Paul in these verses, we should look to the cross of Christ as a surety of all that we hope to receive from God. And not only will God forgive us of our sins, but at the cross we see that he is going to make everything right. And if we realize this, we will leave all of our troubles behind and turn in grateful praise to the God of our salvation. In fact, let's say a few things about this. Because you know what? Let's be honest here for a minute. Who doesn't? look at their circumstances in despair who doesn't look at the current state of our economy the current state of our world even as i record this we're, we're seeing wars and rumors of wars and you know israel and ukraine and 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 in potentially in asia and and more we, we're seeing economies struggling all over the world we're seeing our own country in america struggle with this great experiment of democracy. And it can become so discouraging. We're just talking about our world. We're not even talking about our personal world. Maybe, maybe today you're listening to this and you're struggling personally. You're struggling in a relationship with somebody, uh, a per, maybe a, a working relationship with your boss or a colleague, or you're struggling with a fellow church member at your church and, and the list goes on and on. Or maybe you're having marital challenges or maybe you're having family difficulty or maybe a family member has a memory illness or a, a chronic illness and, and, and it's so hard. 
in the midst of these situations, right? To leave your troubles behind and to focus on the Lord. But, but here's what it does. These ideas are not just for the head. These ideas are not just to transform our hearts. As they transform our hearts, guess what they lead to? They lead us to walk out this walk of faith. Theology is not just for the head. It's not just for the heart. Theology is for all of our life because it impacts, yes, the way that we know God. Yes, the way that we experience God. But also the way that we walk out this walk of faith before God. And we need to be reminded of these things again and again and again because, let's be honest, we are so prone to forget. And this is why we need to worship the Lord. We need to be reminded to fix our gaze steadfastly on the steadfast and sure and unchanging and immutable character of God in his word. We need to be reminded from other people that God is good in the midst of hard times, that in the midst of our challenges, that God is using even this to help us to grow to be like Christ. But there is an end of praise that we need to consider as we wrap up our time together today. In the last years of Jonathan Edwards' life, the great New England evangelists have been working on a treatise that we published only after he died in 1748. The, the paper was titled, The End for Which God Created the World. And there in this essay, this article, this paper, David or Edwards considered the great question of God's chief purpose in creating all things. He asked questions like, what is that great end above all others? And Edwards answered in, in line with David's conclusion to our psalm when he said, God makes himself his end in this way in seeking that his glory and excellent perfection should be known, esteemed, loved, and delighted in by his creatures. In other words, the end for which God created the world is that his own glory should be universally praised with joy and thanksgiving. See, God's chief end being his own praise, we see why David asserted that thankful worship pleases God more than sacrificial offerings. Worship with thanksgiving makes the humble glad to see it. Moreover, when we look to the cross for our victory over all that afflicts us, and then we praise the name of God with a song, magnifying him with thanksgiving as we see in Psalm 69.30, God's saving ends are powerfully achieved in our own life as well. And it is to this great and glorious end that David sings in Psalm 69.33-36, You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for God will save Zion, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are reminded today not only that you care about the state of our lives, but that you know the state of our lives. So wherever we are, Lord, you see us, you know us. You know the state of our hearts. You know the motivation of our hearts. You see them. You know them. You are unchanging. And yet your plans are steadfastly good for us. 
You are orchestrating all of history. You are upholding the world by the word of your power, not to throw it in our face, but for our good and for our joy that we might know you and the power of the resurrected Christ and to be conformed even more into the image of Christ through the stuff that you, of life that you hand tailor under that providence of God for our good and for our joy so that we might grow to be like Christ. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes today on you, on the steadfast love of the Lord who never fails, whose promises are, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, yes and amen in Christ. Help us to do as Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, and to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not only to see our great need of Christ, but a great Christ to meet our need. And Lord, may our hearts be so, not, not only our heads, but not only our hearts, be, be so filled with the love of Christ that we would respond. Respond by mourning over our own indwelling sin, turning in repentance and confession of, of sin to Christ, and then opening our mouths in praise of the forgiveness of sins that Christ has so freely given to us, not because we deserve it, not because we merit it, but solely because of the righteousness of God in Christ alone, that is, the power of God to save the lost. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that, that you would open eyes to see the glory of Christ, that they might even know it and they might respond in saving faith right now to the grace of God. And, Lord, I, I do pray for my brothers and sisters who Many of them are highly afflicted. They're struggling. They're, they're facing trials and difficulties that I can't even imagine. But Lord, you, our text says you know them. You see what's happening. You know what is happening. And you not only know it, you see it and you care. So Lord, help them, help us, help me even in those moments to take my burdens and my friends to take their burdens to you who know them, who care for them, who love them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.